I'm gonna let you in on one of the best kept secrets in the Bible today. I don't mean like the best kept secret to six pack abs or to building your business God's way or something like that. And by secret, I don't mean something that's actually hidden. I mean something that's plain as day at face value in the Bible, but it's this thing that we as human beings have a really hard time embracing and holding on to. And, and it's also a thing that we as churches have a really hard time embracing and holding on to. Uh, it's a best kept secret, but we're gonna share it today. Now, before I get there, let me remind you what we're doing right now. Uh, this month we are praying the Psalms. We're, we're actually practicing the rhythms of prayer that we see in the Psalms. And uh, Ryan pointed out last week, there's different reasons you might pray the Psalms or different things you might expect from the experience. Uh, maybe influence is something that you're hoping to get out of that. Like you're asking God to do something. You hope, you hope that praying the Psalms will change something in your circumstance. A lot of us have grown up in environments that speak of prayer, whether it's the Psalms or other kinds of prayer, as something you do to get God to do something, right? So there's influence and, and then there's expression. Uh, which is really good too, which is uh, opening up the heart and just sort of like a release valve on all the things that you were like feeling, right? And so in in prayer as expression, we sort of move toward wherever our feelings are. And that can be really beautiful and a really great way of integrating our emotional experience with our prayers. But then there's something else that Ryan mentioned last week, another reason that we, we might wanna pray. And I don't know about you, but for me, the spaces that I've grown up in, this might've been the reason for prayer that I understood the least. And the, the thing we're talking about is prayer as formation, as a thing that actually sort of works on us and grows us up. So we're praying the Psalms this month. And in the book of Psalms, in this ancient book of prayers, there are a few different sort of classical categories of prayers or psalm. In fact, uh, for like a century now, scholars have basically agreed, this is what's going on in the book of Psalms. So there's prayers of praise, like the one that Ryan led us in last week, Psalm 146. And these are the, the prayers that you pray that express the experience of everything sort of holding together beautifully, that there's order in the world and you know your place within that order and it's good. So there's prayers of praise, and then there's prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, these are prayers that you pray um, after things have been put back together. Perhaps something is broken in the world or in you or in your circumstance. But, th but then like things come back together, you're on the other side of whatever difficulty you faced, and you pray thanksgiving. But then between prayers of praise and prayers of thanksgiving, there's this other kind of prayer. And this is the secret that I wanna talk to you about today. These are prayers of lament. These are prayers of heartbreak. These are prayers that come from experiences when we have been shattered by what happens. These are prayers that we pray when the world breaks around us or everything breaks within us and we can't make sense of it. And we cry out and we name how difficult it is and we beg God or demand God to do something about it. Today we're gonna look at a, a psalm or a prayer of lament. Let me, uh, let me get into it. So this is Psalm 13 and this is sort of like the classic example of a prayer of lament in the scriptures. Psalm 13 reads, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he's been good to me.
Now, the beginning of that song, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? If you spent the last week praying Psalm 146, the song of praise and delight and celebration, and then you come to Psalm 13, like, this might feel sort of like a jarring turn in the text, right? It might feel kind of uh, bizarre to go from praise to lament. But isn't, isn't it your experience that this is actually what life is often like? Like you're, like you're trucking along and everything is great. You're minding your own business. Things fit together the way that you want them to. And then something you didn't see coming, something you didn't expect com comes in and disrupts all of that peace and goodness. Like that's how it usually goes, right? I mean, like the, like the obvious example right now would be COVID. Like I don't know what your life was like before the middle of March, but for a lot of us, uh, we experienced COVID as this unexpected disruption that came out of nowhere. And now that it has hit, our jobs are in jeopardy, our finances might be struggling, we might have had to move out of the place that we were living in because we couldn't pay the rent. We might have kids at home struggling to do e-learning while we are losing our minds dealing with that while we try to work from home. Uh, we might be isolated and lonely and mental health might be a real struggle for us. And it might be the case that before middle of March when COVID hit, things were great. And then this, this tiny little organism, this little living thing invades our species. And you go from praise and everything is just the way that you want it to be to out of nowhere, like this thing sucks and it's going on and on and on. I joked with our church when we were uh, gathered at Forwinds Field that like in March when we saw COVID coming right before it sort of hit Indiana and we knew that we had to shut down our gatherings, I remember thinking to myself, man, I, I probably better brace myself. We might have to cancel church for a whole week. <laughs> a week. And now I don't even know, uh, is it six months? I couldn't even tell you right now. Uh, how long? Uh, this is how life often goes. One minute, uh, we are experiencing a world that fits together beautifully. And the most honest thing we could say is praise. And then the next minute, something else hits. And we are faced um, with a shattering sort of suffering or difficulty. And we want to beg God to do something about it. And it doesn't seem like God's answering. Uh, when I see this in the Psalms, this sort of encounter with reality, it reminds me of what others have said about these prayers. So uh, Augustine, uh, a bishop in North Africa, who did his work uh, just a few hundred years after Christ, he said that in the Psalms, we have a mirror that shows us every part of ourselves. Uh, another theologian named John Calvin, uh, a while later, he said that in the Psalms, we have an anatomy of the soul. That like everything within us is here on the page. And so it makes sense that praise is there on the page. And it makes sense that Thanksgiving is there on the page. But perhaps the most interesting thing to me is that lament is there on the page. Where the writers of these prayers didn't deny what was happening to them, but they cried out about what was happening to them. So I want to push a little bit further into the lament in this psalm. Let me read uh, just the first part of this again. This is the first four verses of Psalm 13. The writer says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? That's despair, right? Is tomorrow going to be as bad as today and the day after that as bad as today? And is this just an unending chapter of my life? where things aren't the way they should be, and God doesn't seem to be faithful or concerned with the things that are happening here. How long will you hide your face from me? Like, are you looking away? Because if you're not looking away and you see what's happening to me and you're not doing anything about it, then what kind of God are you? 
How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Like for how long am I gonna be facing this thing inside me, this wrestling with um, the disruption and the violence of the experience that I'm going through, the fear that it's riling up inside me, the anxiety that it's stirring up inside me? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Whether your enemy is a circumstance or a person or a group or a force, like how long am I gonna be on the other underside of, of this battle that I am facing against someone or something that seems to wanna to take me out? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Like this thing might be the end of me if you don't do something about it, God. My enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. That's the, uh, the majority of the psalm. Now you might ask like, why would we want to pray this way, right? I mean, that seems like it lacks faith, it lacks optimism, it lacks hope. It seems like a bad attitude. And when you're suffering, like what good would it do to focus on your suffering? Like, like why would you nurse the wound? Why, why would you turn toward these really scary feelings that you're having, like feelings like perhaps God is either not there at all or God has abandoned me. Perhaps this will go on forever. Like why, why, would, you, why would you turn toward those feelings rather than just try to like ignore them and keep your head up, right? Well, a couple of thoughts about that. Uh, denial is a serious drug. And of course, when we try to deny the reality of our experience, like when we are trying to pretend that things aren't as bad as they are, often that leads to some really destructive behaviors in our lives. Like if we are suffering, if the truest thing we could actually say about our experience is that it feels like God has abandoned us and this thing is stretching on forever, and I'm terrified because I don't know how long it will last. If that's the truest thing that you could say about your experience, but you're not saying it, well, it might be that the way that you are avoiding saying that is by choosing these little distractions that turn into addictions that end up doing their own harm in our lives. Denial is a dangerous thing. And it's not just dangerous because of the other patterns or behaviors or habits that we might turn to to deny our experience. But I think that the deepest cost of denial is that God isn't gonna meet us in some denial of our experience because I think God only exists in reality. And I, like, I don't know anything more meaningful in human life than to, to know God to sort of be intimately acquainted with God. And if God is only present with us in the reality of our experience rather than the denial of our experience, then denying our experience also means we're sort of opting out of knowing God in these circumstances. And so uh, I think like denial is actually dangerous, not just for the behaviors and patterns that it stimulates in us, but because it actually draws us out of the deepest experience of being human, which is, which is knowing God in these bodies and lives that we live right now. Now, sometimes what needs to happen for us to name our experience is we actually need language. We need speech to lead us back into the truth of our experience. This is a point made by, among others, a commentator named Walter Brueggemann who works on this psalm. Like sometimes we need to say the truth so we can face the truth. Uh, there's an episode of The West Wing, uh, favorite show ever, by the way, where uh, the president's daughter, if you, if you don't know the West Wing, which if you don't know the West Wing, come on. But if you don't know the West Wing, uh, President Bartlett is the president of the United States and his daughter has actually been kidnapped. And it's like a really scary episode in the plot line. 
And, and you're watching the episode and, and the Secret Service and the FBI and everybody's mobilizing to try to figure out what's happened to the president's daughter and whether this isn't like a, a threat against the United States. And like you're trying to work this out and you're following the president through the episode and he's intense and he's urgent, but you, you don't actually see him grapple emotionally with what's happening to his daughter and the possibility that she's gonna be killed or that he'll never see her again. You, you don't see him like actually face the reality emotionally. You, you don't see him like live in what he's experiencing until something happens in the episode. There's a moment when he walks into the office of one of his speechwriters, and um, he checks in on them. And the idea of course is that they're writing a speech ahead of time for when they get his daughter back. It's sort of like a victory speech, right? It'll be a way of addressing the nation and reassuring the nation that everything's fine. But then the president asks the speechwriter about the other speech. And the speechwriter sort of demurs for a moment as if there isn't another speech. But the president knows that he's got a good speech writing team, which means they've already started working on the speech that the president would give if he loses his daughter, if they never find her or she's found dead. And so uh, the speechwriter hands the president the speech that they've written for that tragic possibility. And the president reads out loud a line from the speech that he has in his hands. This is the speech about him losing his daughter. And that's the moment when he puts words to his lips where he breaks a little bit. And I'm not talking about like wallowing in emotions endlessly or playing the victim, but I'm saying like that's the moment when he allows himself to face the reality that he is in right now. Emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. Sometimes we need language to lead us back to the reality of our experience. And I think the Psalms can do that, which is why they're so formative for us, right? Like, Many of us might be denying some of the most difficult things that we are facing right now. And it could be that a Psalm like Psalm 13 like helps wake up our, our full encounter with reality. And I actually think that's a really powerful and important thing to do. This makes me think of, I had a, a roommate back in college and um, he, he was like the most passive person I'd ever known. Um, like there are days when you're like, do you feel anything? like? Do you get mad about anything? Do you get happy about anything? Do you get excited about anything? And I'm not exactly proud of this, but I found myself actually like trying to get him to fight me. Like I would, I would actually try to see if I could like break him out of that passivity. So I would like, again, I'm not proud of this, but I would do things to try to get him to like break. And while like maybe that wasn't a very nice thing for a roommate to do, and by the way, I did get him to fight me. There's this feeling inside like when you're, like when you're around people who are just disconnected, fundamentally disconnected from the reality that they're living in, that that's not good or it's not right. And uh, Psalms like Psalm 13 are calling us to the deep and difficult but profoundly important work of facing up to, of living fully in the reality that we are a part of, body, soul, spirit, mind, emotions, like fully intimate with the reality that we are living in. Now, side note, not everybody is living through something right now that's well named by Psalm 13. Like there might not actually be something about your life that screams like, how long God, like how long is this gonna last and why have you turned your face from me? It might, it might in fact actually just be dishonest for you to pretend that that's true of your experience right now. But if that's the case, there's another reason for you to pray this prayer. And this is one of the deep insights of the church for 2000 years that has prayed these prayers on a schedule. And here's the insight. Just because you're not suffering doesn't mean your neighbor isn't. And our prayers are meant to be one of the sacred spaces where we don't just name our own experience, but where we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Prayer is a sacred space, not just for you and God or for me and God, but for us together in solidarity. And there might be something profoundly beautiful and important about you praying a prayer like Psalm 13 on behalf of people who are suffering right now. So like, like if your life is, is genuinely good right now and there's nothing about your circumstance that would, that would cause you to say like, how long, God? Like, what's going on? Maybe you pick up Psalm 13 and you pray, how long, Lord? And you ask yourself, who do you know that has been suffering through something that has gone on for far too long? I don't know who, maybe, maybe you got somebody in your life, a family member whose mental health journey has just been one challenge after another. And you know enough about where they've been and where they are that, that you understand that this is a prayer that would erupt from their life right now. And so maybe you take the burden on your own shoulders with them and you pray with them on their behalf. How long, Lord? Uh, maybe you've got somebody in your life who's uh, been unemployed and they've been fighting and working and trying to find work, but it's just not coming together. And it's, it's attacking their confidence and it's uh, threatening their financial security. And you know enough about their journey and, and you get outside yourself for a minute and think about somebody else and you realize you could pray this prayer on their behalf. Maybe you think about uh, victims of injustice, whether here in the United States or elsewhere around the world. Maybe you think about our black sisters and brothers uh, if you're not one of them. And you think about this prayer, how long, Lord? How many hundreds of years will we keep building and rebuilding a system that finds new and creative ways to oppress? Maybe you pray this prayer for somebody else, and in doing so, you find that it draws you into a deep solidarity with them. I think there's lots of reasons, formative reasons, important reasons for us to let this prayer wake us up keep us from denying reality and draw us into like an intimate encounter with the way things really are. Now, here's the other thing about this psalm, and this is true of virtually all the prayers of lament in the Bible. It takes a turn, so hang with me for a minute. We just heard the first four verses, like, how long, God? Like, look on me, God, do something about this or I will die. But then we turn to verse five, and it makes this strange sort of turn. All of a sudden we read, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. How do you feel about that? This Psalm began, how long Lord will you forget me forever? And then with no explanation, it turns and it says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he's been good to me. How do you feel about that? I'll tell you how I feel about it. I'll tell you how I felt about it. So like when I first started studying the Psalms through genres and, and understanding the forms that they take and, and trying to understand the wisdom that they offer about how to pray, uh, I discovered that like it's common knowledge among scholars who study these genres, that prayers of lament begin in lament and they end back in praise. And I didn't like it. I didn't like it because it felt to me like that kind of counterfeit, like greeting card spirituality that like, doesn't really work. It felt to me like spiritual bypassing, which is a, a term that's taken on a lot of prominence lately, where you sort of slap spiritual optimism on top of a painful circumstance as a way of ignoring or like skipping over the difficult thing that you're going through. It felt like the kind of thing that sounds good from a pulpit, but doesn't work when you try to live inside the experience that it describes. It felt like the kind of thing that drives people to say the worst kinds of things to you when you were suffering, right? Like they're, they're trying to be helpful. And so you're going through this really hard thing and they say, don't worry, buddy, just rejoice in the Lord. And like, you know, they mean well, but really what they do is they trample over the fact that you've been shattered by what happened. I don't like this part of these Psalms. 
I've struggled with this part of these songs. But then I remembered something else. And what I remembered is that like a basic principle of reading spiritual texts is that they often express in tight microcosm something that takes much longer and is more expansive. Like, like I don't think the Psalms are written this way to force you into a quick turn that would be untrue. I think they're written this way for, for other reasons. I think they're written this way because uh, perhaps they know something about reality. So this begs the question, if this is disclosing some kind of insight or wisdom, we could ask, like, what is it about lament? What is it about naming the most difficult parts of our experience that can lead to praise? What is it about mourning that can lead to rejoicing? Is there something that connects these two experiences? And I think there is. Uh, let me tell you an example of an experience that I've had many times in my life that I've noticed, and let me see if it rings true for you. Uh, this is one example of a pattern that I've seen over and over and over again. And it's about the relationship between mourning or lament and praise. Uh, a few years ago, just as Southland City Church was getting started, uh, dear friends of mine who were like kind of core members helping us get the church started, uh, they were pregnant uh, with their baby boy. And then uh, baby Theo was born uh, very prematurely. And he wasn't just born premature, but he was born with a host of medical problems that threatened his life. And so after a week in the NICU here in the South Bend area, he was flown by helicopter down to Indianapolis, where he spent the next six months in the NICU down there. And over and over again, it looked like he was coming to the brink of the end of his life, but then an intervention would bring him back. And yet six months later, he's still there and he's not showing any signs of being able to leave the NICU. And so uh, the doctors down there, they enact uh, a really dramatic intervention. It's called ECMO, where they basically externalize his heart and lung functions for a while. Uh, but you can't do that forever. And Theo had been on ECMO for a while, like days and days. And the doctors made the, the painful determination that like there were no interventions left that were gonna save Theo's life. And so I um, happened to be down there the, the, as a Friday night. And it was time for the doctors to stop using the ECMO because you can't use ECMO forever. And so I remember standing there in the hallway with my friends uh, as the palliative care doctor came in. And they were basically coached on the impending death of their baby boy that they'd been fighting for for six months. Uh, we were told, you know, they're gonna make baby Theo comfortable and this is what you can expect as he passes, as we put him in your arms. And so in that moment in the hallway, I mean, um, we had already begun to live into the future where Theo was gone after um, his mom and dad fighting so hard for six months. And the absurdity of that loss was settling in um, with us. I, I say us too, as if, um, as if my experience was theirs. I mean, of course they're his parents and the magnitude of grief that they were carrying was orders larger than mine, but I was there too and feeling it with them have been down in the hospital many, many times with them. Um, now here's the thing, Theo actually made it and he's thriving today. It was a strange turn of events that night where his vitals got better, not worse. Uh, he's, he's doing very well. Um, but we had already sort of crossed the threshold of grief that night of a, a very, very difficult, um, absurd kind of grief, right? 
Well, the next day I have this long drive. So I'm in Indianapolis overnight. I've got to drive from Indianapolis to Grand Rapids uh, to do some preaching uh, on Sunday. And I'm in the car for, I don't know, like five or six hours from Indy to Grand Rapids. And a storm had just passed through before I drove. And this is the kind of thing I don't even know how to describe because I fear that it sounds petty. But all I can tell you is for all of those hours in the car, the landscape outside my car, the light and the land, there was something like radiating and luminescent. Like I don't know when I've seen a more beautiful landscape or more beautiful light in the sky. Like the way that the light can be angular when it comes through clouds and it's both brighter and darker than normal. Like the spectrum has widened in the light. And I wept in my car for hours. And it wasn't the weeping of grief. It was more like a, a strange kind of rejoicing in the fullness that I felt all around me. But I don't think it's because Theo made it, even though I was obviously overwhelmingly grateful that Theo made it. This is a pattern that I've noticed, and forgive me if this sounds a little strange, okay? The pattern that I have noticed, and I bet you have too, is that when I have crossed thresholds of loss or lament or grief, there's a lot of feelings. I mean, there's numbness and there's anger and there's pain, but there's something else that often happens too, which is that when I have crossed a threshold of grief, something opens up inside. The best metaphor I can come up with, and if this sounds strange, I know it's strange, okay, so hang with me. It's almost like the soul is an eye that sees and the soul is here to see the good and the bad and the ugly and the beautiful. And the soul is that capacity that we have within to sense the presence of God around us, uh, with us in this world. And it's almost like something about mourning or grief, like that intimate encounter with that part of reality, with the things that we are suffering, somehow it like dilates the soul and opens it up. And when the soul is opened up, it's almost like it lets in more light. Because there's a few things that are true, right? One thing that's true is that we suffer. And when we deny our suffering, when we pretend we're not suffering, when we just slap a bandit on it or put a smile on our face, when we fail to pray prayers of lament or mourning, it's like we are disconnecting ourselves from that capacity that we have within to live in the most intimate relationship with reality, right? But the thing is, if you cut yourself off from that capacity when things are difficult, well, you've also cut yourself off from that capacity that senses the goodness in the world around us and the power in the world around us and the presence in the world around us. And so I, 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 I'm still working this out in my life, but I just, I keep discovering that there's something about mourning and lament when we don't deny reality, but we face it. There's something about that move that forms us and makes us more ready and capable of sensing the other things that are real and true, which is the beauty and the goodness and the presence that has saturated the world around us. Like the world is humming with this good and beautiful presence of God. And perhaps we are most able to see it and feel it when we face the most difficult things that we are going through. This is, this is a way of saying that the only way out is through. They're like, we don't get out of our suffering unless we go through our suffering. By going through our suffering, facing the difficult things, and perhaps using prayers like this, like using speech like this to help us confront our reality, that the way out then is, is through. And on the other side of those things, we find ourselves more deeply acquainted with all of reality. 
which is ultimately to say more deeply acquainted with God, which is to say that perhaps praise will spring forth. And we will know that every loss, every fragmenting that happens in the world somehow happens within a larger wholeness that cannot be hidden or hurt or broken or, or fractured, a larger wholeness that was never threatened by the things that happened and that we are part of that wholeness, um, which is another word for saying that like we are held in God. So I think uh, we should pray these prayers of lament for when they call us back to our own reality and for when they help us stand in solidarity with the suffering of our neighbor. I think we should pray these prayers of lament because they draw us into an intimate encounter with reality. And because if we are intimately acquainted with reality, we might find ourselves praising on the other side of the pain that we face. There's one more note about these prayers of lament, uh, which is there, there's a prayer of lament called Psalm 22. And the first words of Psalm 22 are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's an ancient Hebrew prayer, but you might know it because Jesus prays it on the cross. And all these Psalms of lament, the, the paradox here is that these Psalms of lament speak of the absence of God. But when God lives God's life in Jesus, when God shows up in flesh and blood, when God is imminent in the experience of Christ, God prays a prayer about the absence of God. I don't know how the metaphysics work on that, but, but what I know is that uh, in this Jesus story, we are being invited to discover that even when we feel most forsaken by God, God is, is with us there in a strange, powerful way. And uh, I don't think you can fake that or pretend to feel that, but I think you might discover it if you keep doing your work and going through and facing the pain. So uh, this week, I challenge you, I encourage you, pray Psalm 13. Pray it slowly, find a quiet corner of your house. You might pray it out loud and let the words speak back to yourself. You might ask if there's anything about your own life where this prayer is the truest thing that you could say, but perhaps you've been avoiding it. Or you might ask, who do I know or love or who is out there in the world for whom this is an honest prayer and how could I pray it with them and for them? Um, as you do that, my hope would be that you slowly discover the solidarity of God with us in our suffering, that you feel your heart opening up as you face the fullness of reality. And somewhere along the way, you don't have to fake it, but you might define, you might discover, you might um, feel compelled toward a kind of praise that happens uh, on the other side of our mourning. Grace and peace, friends.